0: All of life is clay in the hands of the potter. He holds the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the upright and the disgraceful. The remarkable thing about the Father is that he is able to take all of the pieces of life and work them into a unique masterpiece. When all I am encounters the great I am, the result is transformation and blessing. let's pray, let's pray. Father, um, we think of the women being ready to head back to church here. Uh, Lord, as their retreat comes to a close, would you, as they, as they do come home, would you just drill into their souls things that you would long for them to carry with them? And Lord, for us, as we open your word today, would you uh, bless the reading of it, the hearing of it, and Lord, as your people, may we not just read and hear, but may we be people who are shaped to live in the world that you've created us, to live in for the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 I grew up in in a family that did just this. We went to church every single Sunday. And while I wouldn't say that I was a um, begrudging participant, I definitely didn't have a faith in Jesus in the way that the scriptures describe that. Uh, I grew up for 18 years, my parents were very involved, but but my interest in church for the first uh, number of years of my life up to the age of 10 revolved around a man by the name of Randy. And Randy um, had a mental disability, he took the bus to church and he sat in the very front row. And in that front row, he had, a, he had a backpack on that he would take off as he went to church. And um, one sermon, I kid you not, about 10 minutes into the sermon, he zips or unzips his backpack, takes out two aerosol cans of deodorant, shakes them vigorously, crosses his arms, puts his hands under his shirt, and starts to deodorize himself in the front row. And as a 10-year-old kid, I'm like, praise Jesus, right? Like, I know people look forward to Easter, but thank you, Randy, right? For a 10-year-old kid, I was like, this is the most amazing thing that I have ever seen. And that was the pinnacle for me, man. Growing up, that was, we had reached the mountaintop when Randy double barrel deodoranted himself on a Sunday during the sermon, Needless to say, I'd heard the stories, but they never really sunk in. I don't know if you've had that experience. Maybe, maybe you had the, the pleasure of growing up in a family like I did that came to church. And for 18 years, I'd been around the story, but the story never was my story. I mean, I'd heard about who God was. I'd, I'd, I'd seen people that genuinely believed in God and had a, a strong faith, but I've got to be honest with you. Some Sundays, it just sort of felt like we went through the motions. It, it just sort of felt like we, we played church. It felt like we came to a place not all that dissimilar from here because it was what we did the Sunday before and it was what the tradition that we had stepped into did. There wasn't a whole lot for me that was genuinely encountering the God of the universe. And I would argue that Jacob would have fallen into that same category. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been studying the life of Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of the faith. And yet there's this poignant part when he's receiving the blessing from his father where he turns back to his dad, Isaac, and says, "Your God. That your God might bless me. As if to say, dad, this is sort of your deal, but it's not mine. It's not mine on a heart level type of way. You see, maybe like you, Jacob had heard the stories. And maybe like you, Jacob had had been around communities of faith. He heard about the faithfulness and the goodness of God. He heard about the promises of God. And and yet, the promises weren't something that he held on to personally. The story he'd been told was not yet his story. Until this day, until the day that we're going to read about this morning, this is the day where religion turns into, for Jacob, it turns into relationship. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. And in it, we're going to see this beautiful story start to unfold. It's a story that's both mystical and engaging, and starting in verse 10. Josh did a great job last week, Josh Billings, our executive pastor, of introducing us to Jacob's crazy uncle, Laban. He has stolen, Jacob has stolen the blessing from his brother, uh, he pretended to be his brother. His father spoke a good word over him, a word of blessing over him. His brother found out, and as you can imagine, wasn't all that excited to hear that he had had the wool pulling over his eyes, um, no pun intended. And that because he lived with wool over his eyes, I mean, you can just imagine Jacob, a hairy or Esau, a hairy man, having to like part his hair in order to see. So, um, And Jacob had stolen the blessing that was his, and now he was on the run for his very life because his brother wanted to kill him because of what he'd done. Starting in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 28. It says, And Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there the night, and because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, uh, in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And you and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is is in this place, and I did not know it. What, what, a, what a statement. What a, what a terrible reality. That, that it's possible for you and I to walk through life and to live in a world that's permeated with the presence of God. And to, in the same way of Jacob, to say, I I didn't know it. I I didn't see it. My my eyes weren't open. My ears weren't weren't attentive. My heart wasn't soft. I, I, I didn't know, God, that you were present and that you were in this place. I mean, let's just take a moment and think about how insane that is. like If the President of the United States walked into this room, we'd know it. We'd know it, and we'd probably acknowledge it in some way, shape, or form. Depending on which side of the aisle you're on, you would acknowledge it in a different way. I get it, but we'd all acknowledge it, right? If John Elway walked into this room, we'd all know it. Heck, Paxton Lynch has been a Bronco for three days. If he walked in, we'd know it. We would know it. And yet, he misses it. Jacob missed it for years and the tragedy is he grew up around the story he grew up hearing about God he grew up knowing the faithfulness of God to his grandfather Abraham I mean Abraham had to have taken him around a fire and told him about God speaking to him saying through through our family Jacob all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed And you better believe that his father, Isaac, in some way, shape, or form, he passed down that story too, saying, I'm I'm, I'm the chosen seed that God is going to redeem humanity through. He grew up around it, and he missed it. As I started to study this week, I just had this question that permeated my soul, and it may strike you too. How much of it do I miss, God? I mean, how much of this do we just attribute to sort of playing church? Do we attribute to just going through the motions? We, we do this on a Sunday because this is what we've always done on a Sunday. But do we really expect to encounter the God of the universe? Do we expect to see him? Do we expect to interact with him? See, this is the day for Jacob that changes everything. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's great little paragraph in his book, Miracles, where he says this. He says, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap into, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, well, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion or playing church or just pursuing man's search for God suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Supposing worse, that he'd found us. That's Jacob's experience, he is on his merry way, playing church, going through the motions. It's his father's faith. It's not his faith. And he has this encounter that just opens up his eyes and radically, dramatically changes his life. Maybe you've had a similar experience. I, I have. I have. And ironically, just like Jacob, my, my experience was on a backpacking trail. I'd grown up in church, like I said, I'd gone through the motions, Randy and all. I'd been through it, and I thought I understood what this whole religious thing was all about. But a friend invited me after my senior year of high school to go on a backpacking trip with Young Life. And I was, we were on day two of a seven-day backpacking trip in the San Juan Mountains, and if we were to go back there today, I think I could find the very rock where I was sitting. And I opened my Bible and was still for one of the first times in my life, and the only way I can describe it is that it felt like I was wearing 3D glasses and the words of Matthew 5 were just flying off the page and hooking into my heart in a way that I knew would make me different. I walked off the trail, I got home, I sat down at the breakfast table during that next week, and my mom said to me, Ryan, you seem different what happened to you out on the trail. And I responded by saying, I think I became a Christian. And she responded by saying, I, I thought you already were. And I said back to her, me too. <laughs> but this was different. This was different. This was an experience with God that shaped my life. And it happened to Jacob. It's happened to many of you. And when it happens, our eyes are opened in a way that just completely dramatically revolutionizes the way we live. Open eyes to the presence of God, to the activity of God, to the power of God lead to a vibrant life. And that's where Jacob starts to walk. And that's my prayer for us today is that we wouldn't just play around with religion, but that we would pursue the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That there'd be some sort of expectation when we walk in here, not just that we're going to go through the motions and not just that we're going to step into the stream of 2,000 years of beautiful tradition. We're doing that. But we're meeting with a God who is alive and well. And so Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he writes this. He says in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to, say it with me, church, wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's, It's time to wake up. It's time for our eyes to be open, for a revolution in our soul to occur that we would see that God is not just something that we play around with and that we tinker with and that we have a mental ascent to try to understand, but he, he is present and real and personal. And when our eyes are opened to his presence, our lives are changed to his purposes and that's what starts to happen in Jacob's life. And I just want to walk back through this with you. And there's three things that I want to point out in Jacob's life that happen when his eyes are opened. There's three distinct ways that his life is changed and it becomes more vibrant. It's as though like in the Wizard of Oz, the, the screen goes from black and white to in color. That's Jacob's experience in Genesis chapter 28. Look at it again with me. In 28 verses 10 through 12, it says, And Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place. I love that it's not named yet. And he stayed there the night. The sun had set. Taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and he laid it down as a place to sleep. And then he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. I, I just happened to have a ladder. Um, it's weird that that's there. Behold, there was a ladder. And it reached, I'm sorry, set up on earth. So in our little illustration, we'd have this as earth in Jacob's dream. And it reached to heaven. It reached all the way to heaven. And behold, there's angels ascending and descending on it. Now, most scholars will point out that what Jacob most likely saw wasn't a ladder in this sense. It was probably what they would call a ziggurat. A ziggurat was a huge, massive structure that was used for worship in the ancient world. But it wasn't necessarily a place that people went to give worship. It was a place that the people built for the gods to dwell in. And here's the picture that Jacob Jacob gets this image of God, these angels ascending and descending, and God definitively declares to Jacob, the entire world is my footstool. There's not a corner of the globe, Jacob, where I am not. There is no place that I don't exist. In all of my vast and beautiful creation, the entire earth is my footstool as the great, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts, Earth is not left to its own resources. And heaven is not a remote, self-contained realm for the gods. Heaven has to do with earth, and earth may finally count on the resources of heaven. We often think of heaven up there, out there somewhere, and God dwells there, and then we have earth down here. It's a dualistic understanding of the world that we live in. And Jacob's dream points out a more beautiful, deeper reality that heaven and earth are not distinct and different. They are beautifully, powerfully intertwined. There's a crossover. You and I live under an open heaven. An open heaven where God is, pro- where God is present at every place. It's interesting that in Christianity, we have this picture of a ladder, But in every religion you go to, there's a ladder. There's a a way that we are instructed to get to God. The fascinating part about the ladder in Christianity is the direction of the flow. See, because in every other religion, the ladder is there for you to climb up. The ladder's there for you to do enough good in order to get to God. The ladder's there so that you can jump through enough hoops. The ladder is there in order that you who are separated from God might be able to pull up your own bootstraps and do enough in order to get God to look down on you and go, you know what, that Paulson guy's not all that bad. But in Christianity, the ladder's there for a definitively different purpose. The ladder in Christianity is not there for Jacob to climb up. The ladder is there for God to come down. And so, the point of the story and the stairway to heaven is not do enough good, perform enough religious duty, jump through enough hoops. If that's what you think Christianity is, I have great news for you. You're wrong might be the best news you hear all day. This is a picture of grace. This is a picture of God entering into the story of humanity with his presence and his goodness that permeates it all. It's as though the psalmist writing in Psalm chapter 40 echoes this picture that we see in Genesis 28, that when I was stuck dead and deep in the muck and the mire in the pit, God dropped a ladder down, not for me to climb up, but for him to meet me and pull me up. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. To put a new song in our mouth to sing. The miracle of this passage is that God definitively binds himself to a treacherous fugitive. And Jacob's eyes are opened. And when our eyes are opened too, we start to become conscious of the presence of God all around us. The theological term is omnipresence. There isn't a place that God doesn't exist, that his goodness and glory does not permeate. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, where can I go? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I go from, flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, nowhere. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Okay, so look up at me for a second. You have never had an experience. You've never had a day. You've never gone to a place where there wasn't a ladder. Ever, Every single day you wake up, his goodness and grace is present in the deepest, darkest, most painful experiences of life. I want to assure you, I want to, I want to declare, I want to preach to you this morning. There's a ladder. How do I know that? Well, look at Jacob's life. I mean, it, it says this, this first passage is just, it's just beautifully poetic and real. It says, and Jacob left and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place. We don't know the place. Why? Because it doesn't matter. The beautiful part about this place is it's not a place. That's the powerful part of this story. It's not some place that, that many people of God have been before and that they go, "Wow, well, you've got to get to fill in the blank if you want to meet with God. No, he meets with God in a certain place, which is really no place at all. Probably the last place you met God too. Not only that, not only that, but it says, it points out, he's on a journey from Beersheba to Haran. Now, in case you were wondering how far that is, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. By foot, it's about 700 miles. And he's pretty early into this journey. He's pretty early into the journey when he, when he sees the ladder, when he encounters the God of the universe. Isn't it funny how God works? We often think we'll encounter God when we get to a certain place and do a certain thing. And God often meets us in the in-between. Right? In between the promise and the healing, that's where he meets us. In between the pain and the resolution, that's where he meets us. Waiting for an appointment, waiting for a job, waiting for a relationship, waiting in traffic. Isn't it great that God can meet us even there? In the in-between times in life. And it says taking one or um, and he came to a certain place, which is no place at all, really. He stayed there the night because the sun had set. And what the narrator of Genesis wants you to feel is that not only is the sun setting in the physical sense, the day is coming to a close, but Jacob's life feels the same way. The sun is setting. The the promises that he'd been given, that he was trying his best to hold on to, there's no way that they could be good still today in light of where he is and in light of what's going on in his life. He's at his lowest point. How do I know that? Well, he's so low that the narrator of Genesis says, taking one of the stones from that place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. Okay. Now, you have got to be pretty close to the end of your rope if you're using this as a pillow. He's early on in his adventure to go see Uncle Laban. I mean, can you imagine him like, getting a few days in and going, oh, I didn't even bring a pillow. Oh man, like what? what's wrong with me? He's at his lowest point. He's at his lowest point and that's where He meets God. That's where religion turns into relationship. That's where the stories, these stories, become his story. That's where God starts to wreck and transform in the most beautiful of ways, Jacob's life. You see, here's the beautiful thing about the story, friends, is that pain can be a portal to his presence. Is it, it, that hopelessness can be a catalyst for healing. Is that disappointment can help us distinguish and clarify our priorities in a new way? It's that confusion can actually lead to a place of clarified vision. How do I know that? Well, Jacob's life points to it, it declares it all around. When our eyes are open to his presence everywhere, we have to, we begin to believe that there is not a place or an experience, regardless of how painful it is, that God is not present. That God is not present. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it when he puts it like this. He says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. That's awesome. That's awesome. The story goes on in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, and it says. This is what God says to Jacob when he, when he climbs down the ladder and has a conversation with Jacob the fugitive. He says this, and behold, the Lord stood above it, above the ladder, and the Lord, the God of Abraham, and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south, and you shall all... And sh- In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Um, That's what we would call the patriarchal promises. The patriarchal promises. They were the same promises that had been given to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac. And now what Jacob hears from God is that you are in the lineage of promise. My hand will not leave you. I'm going to be good to you. And everything I told to your grandfather, Abraham, I will be good to you on also. I mean, hey, if you're Jacob, you're going, praise the Lord. Take me some of that. Give me some of that. Verse 15. And then these are promises that are personal to Jacob. Patriarchal promises came first. The personal promises come second. Behold, I'm with you and I will keep you and wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke up and said, surely God was in this place, and I knew it not. I mean, listen to what God says to him. I am with you. That's the intent for Jacob to see in every season of life, in every pain, in every sorrow, in every regret, there's a ladder in the story somewhere. I mean, you think about these promises that Jacob has. You think about the promises and then what he's going to go and live through. He spends 20 years with his crazy Uncle Laban. Much of that time he's taken advantage of. Much of that time he's manipulated. He spend, Then he runs from Uncle Laban and he tries to go home and he's met by his brother whom 20 years earlier he betrayed. And I don't think that's exactly a bro hug coming, right? Neither does Jacob. Neither does Jacob. And isn't it true, you guys, that so much of the time we read the scriptures and we read the promises of God and we go, come on, All, all I want you to do, God, is just tell me how it really is. Because my reality seems so far removed from your promise. And Jacob's story is not a story about how he receives the promises of God and then his life is awesome which I love because if it were, wouldn't you and I read it and go, that, that's not true. We know that's not true. I love it. It's not, that, it's not that he goes, well, isn't this great? I'm skipping through a field eating strawberries, sipping lemonade. Oh, the promises of God are awesome. No, it's, it's in the deepest, darkest moments of life. I will hold on to you because I'm convinced that you're holding on to me. That's what the promises are, that in the storms of life, we have a solid place for our feet to stand. It's not that life is always awesome. It's that he never lets us go. That's what the promises tell us, that he is good in every single season. So God tells him, I'll be with you. I will keep you and I will assure your homecoming. You will return home. Uh, Hey, I just want to pause to recognize he gives us the same promises, friends. I'm with you. I'll keep you. I'll carry you safely home. It doesn't always look like what we thought it looked like, but he is always good on his promises. And because that's true, can I just give you three pieces of encouragement? One, to know what his promises are for you. Because times in life are coming where you will need to hold onto them. And, and if you're going, all right, Paulson, where do I start? I'm glad you asked that great question. Let me give you two passages of scripture. Start here. Start in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And just get it into your soul. And after you do that, go to Romans chapter 8. And here's what you'll be reminded of. You'll be reminded that you are a child of God, that you are blameless before him. You'll be reminded that you have been forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. You'll be reminded that before you were ever born, God had a beautiful, masterful, wonderful plan for you. You'll be reminded that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll be reminded that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. You'll be reminded that God is in the process of renewing, restoring, and redeeming all all things you'll be reminded that he's working everything together for good in your life because you love him and are called according to his purposes you'll be reminded that nothing can separate you from the love of god not height or depth or angels or principalities or anything else and all of creation will be able to separate you from the presence of god so friends stand confident in those promises over you See, see, Jacob is, is first conscious of his presence, God's presence. That starts to open his eyes. And then he's confident in his promises. That starts to open his eyes even more. It leads to a vibrant life. All throughout this week, I've been wrestling with this question. What do we do with religious experience, quote unquote? I, I mean, what do we do? with the wonderful reality that there are times when God breaks through the the natural way that the world, that he set the world up and he goes against the flow. What do we do with the fact that there's ladders and that sometimes we encounter the God of the universe in a very mystical but real way? I mean, you do know that this is happening all over the globe, do you not? I mean, in Muslim countries all over the Middle East, there are people who, just like Jacob, had a dream about God. There are people who are waking up from a night's sleep and going, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Meeting Jesus in dreams? I I wondered, as I was reading this, this scripture this week and trying to get it into my heart and into my soul, why a dream? Like, why come in a dream why not just come in the, every day in, the, in the, at noon? Why not come that way, God? And I just sense God saying, well, well Ryan, I, I came in a dream because there's no way that Jacob would have recognized me. His life was too painful and there was too much fear. I came in a dream because it was the only way I'd actually get through to him. And he's doing it all over the globe. What do we do when God shows up in our life in a ecstatic, spiritual, yet very real way? Here's the tendency of humanity because we long for that. We love that. Our tendency is if God shows up in a very real, very powerful way, here's what we want to do. We want to build a way to reproduce the experience. Oh, we want to we try to get that over again because it just resonates so deeply in our soul. So Peter, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, he sees Jesus in glorious white and he's like, um, let's build a house. Right? And his friends look, like, look at him and go like, you're an idiot, right? But he just wants to preserve the experience. He wants to relive the experience. But the latter experiences of life, friends, the mountaintop experiences of life were not meant to be relived and re-experienced. They're designed to shape us, to change us, to chisel our character more into the image of our creator. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob teaches us what to do with this type of experience. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was loose at first. See, what's happening is he's taking a place that was set up for another lowercase g, God, and stealing it back and redeeming it for Yahweh, the king of heaven. And he said, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way I go, I will give and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is a beautiful picture of how we respond when God breaks through and changes our world dramatically. Here's what Jacob does. He doesn't build a house to come back to. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say, I got to try to relive this experience over and over and over and over again. What he does is he says this, God, if you are, God, if you are, then my life is yours. If you are, if you exist, if this is your world, then my life is yours. And what we see, this is, this is just awesome, the promises he's been given turn into the pathways that he walk, the pathways that he walks. The promises he's given in verses 13 through 17 become the pathways that he walks. And that's God's design for all of us, friends. Look up at me for just a second. The promises of God aren't something we're supposed to just hold on to and cuddle and think, oh man, isn't that really, really nice? They are supposed to inform the way that we walk and live and be on a daily basis. He turns promises into pathways, Jacob does. He makes a vow of commitment saying, God, because you are, if you ask it of me, I will obey. No footnote. No footnote. And friends, that's how gospel movements start all over the world. By a group, by groups of people no larger than this. Saying, if God asks it of me, my answer is yes. I'm not asking any questions. I'm just going to go. I'm going to trust. It's also the way that God starts to shape our life. Because he goes, listen, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to set up a a pillar here. Isn't it wonderful that a pillow that represented his pain turns into a pillar that reminds him of his presence? There's a lot of Ps there, but they're all true. The narrator wants you to know it's the same rock he used as a pillow for his head that he sets up as a pillar for remembrance. What a beautiful picture, friends, of the hard hard things that we walk through, the pain that we walk through, that God often transforms those things that are most painful in our life to remind us of his presence and his goodness and his faithfulness, that he is with us through it all. And that's why we've got to be willing to tell our stories. We've got to be willing to share our scars because our scars often are the things that remind us it's his story, not ours. The pain are the things that he turns into the pillars that remind us, God, you're at work. And don't you just love that Jacob knows I've got to set up a way, a physical way of remembering God's faithfulness and God's goodness. I mean, you and I would look at him and go, how would you forget that? And yet, how often do we forget the things that God's done in our life that are transformative? I'd encourage you and be a person that sets up pillars, Ebenezer's. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by the help I come. Remembrances, stones of remembrances. God loves to turn our pain into his pillars. And then finally, Jacob just goes, Hey, listen, if you are, I'm yours. And that means that everything I have is yours also. God, I'm submitting my life. I'm surrendering my life. My life is yours. We're the whole realm of nature, mind that we're in offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Charles Wesley. It's interesting that this isn't the only ladder in Scripture. This isn't the only time we read about this sort of obscure, interesting story of Jacob. See, when Jesus comes on the scene and is gathering people to follow him, to be his disciples, people who live in the same way that he lives, he calls Philip to him, and Philip becomes a follower of Jesus, and, and then they together reach out to Nathanael, and Jesus walks up to Nathanael and says, hey, um, Nathanael, I saw you yesterday under that tree, and Nathanael's like, What? Because Jesus wasn't there. He was by himself. And Jesus looks at Nathanael and goes, that amazes you? Wow, you're in for a ride. You're in for a treat. There's way better things coming than just me knowing what you were doing yesterday without having seen you there. And in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus makes this transformative statement. And he said to him, to Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of the Lord ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am the ladder. I am the ladder. I am the connection point, the intersection between heaven and earth. And it's on my body given and my blood shed that the Father makes a way for you and I to be with God forever, throughout all of eternity. Jesus is the ladder. He is the stairway. He's the connection point. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering around the table to remind themselves. They've been gathering around pillows, if you will. Things that started out painful that God transformed into pillars. They've been gathering around a story about Jesus the Messiah who was beaten, was broken, whose body was nailed to a Roman cross and who died for the sin of humanity. It's a story that looks a lot like a stone. It's pretty painful. It's pretty normal. It it was normal back then and, and it doesn't exactly look like something you'd want to remember. But God in his Divine sovereignty. As his son gives his life, he atones for the sin of humanity. And so that pain becomes our pillar. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering around the table to remember. To remember that there's not a corner of his globe that his presence does not touch. To remember that because of his body given and his blood shed, your life is covered in promise. And to remember, to remember that we have been invited to walk in his pathway. And as you come this morning, come remembering he is the ladder. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he longs to meet you even in the in-between and even in the pain and even in the sorrow, he longs to meet with you. And so as you come anticipate meeting with him, The table's open to any who would say that they are followers of the way of Jesus, who have put their faith in him. If that's you, you are welcome here this morning at these tables. If that's not you, I would invite you this morning to put your faith in this ladder. His name is Jesus. He made a way for you to be completely forgiven of your sin and to have relationship with him, most holy God. Surrender to him and then come celebrate with us this morning. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we come to your table, would you remind us of, of your presence with us, Lord, for the person who's in the in-between, Lord, they're waiting and they're wondering where you're at. Lord, would you meet them in this place, I pray. Remind them that there's a ladder in every story. And Lord, would you remind us of the good promises that you have purchased over our lives? And as we receive those, may our eyes be opened, our lives be made vibrant to walk with you, King of kings, Lord of lords. We love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen.